1: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the
0: fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. prohibited
2: by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You can't win anything with kids. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. How much are the players looking forward to Arsene Wenger arriving?
1: Hi guys, welcome to another episode of the Phoenix Five. Today we have a very special guest, a member of the crazy gang, a member of the infamous Tuesday Night Club, a former England international, a Premier League and FA Cup winner, an Arsenal legend. I could go on and on and on. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce to you Mr. Nigel Winterburn. Hello, Nigel. How are you?
3: I'm very well, thank you.
1: Thank you so much again for coming on the show. Um, Today I'm with David Graham and David Holland. Hi, guys. Uh, How are
2: you doing? Hi,
1: Paul. Hi, Nigel. So I'm going to jump straight in, Nigel. First question we always ask the players is, "What was your route into football? How did you get there? Was it YTS? Was it uh, sending off for uh, like your CV into trying to get a club, or was it just by a stroke of luck?"
3: Uh, stroke of luck, really. I was uh, so I'm a Midlands boy, uh, and I was playing for the uh, my uh, Nuneaton schools as it was then. Uh, and in one of the games, after the just after the game, um, the Don Dorman, the chief scout from Birmingham City, uh, came up to me and my parents and said, "Like, we've been watching you play. Um, would you be interested in coming down for for a trial?" So um, I got a letter sent through. Um, and then you just literally turned up. We turned up at Birmingham City training ground. There were thirty kids. I was what sixteen at that time. There thirty kids, uh, and basically we just we just picked two teams, um, and they uh, played a game. And the I was really uh, I don't know. I played left back a little bit, but more more midfield than anything else. And I was actually playing in midfield in the game where Don Dorman had watched me play. Um, But on the day when they were picking the teams, um, they only had uh, one other guy that was a regular left back. So they were asking if anyone would volunteer to, to play at left back. And then they said, we'll, you know, we'll put you in your preferred uh, position sort of later on. So I'm being left footed and thinking, well, there's bound to be a lot of midfield players here. I'll, I'll, put my hand up and take the chance. Uh, and at least I'm going to get a decent part of the game. So I played left back for for that game. Uh, and then after the game, they invited me back for another trial. And then this time they told me, you're playing left back. Uh, and after the second trial, they offered me, uh, well, what was then really an ap- apprenticeship contract uh, for when I left school. So I was literally three months from from leaving school. Um, and then signed, obviously, I, so I signed for Birmingham for City and really that's how uh, it started off for me, if you like, in a, in a professional game. I know uh, as I was, I mean, I literally just played for my school. I played for my uh, men's team, village team. I mean, I only lived in a very, very small village and I basically played for a Sunday pub team. Uh, and i know there were a few scouts that had come along and watched me play um but this was really like the first opportunity if you like that had, i'd had to uh, to really join uh, a professional team so obviously that was i was delighted with that that was the first opportunity i got uh, and that was my first contract if you like uh with uh, with with Birmingham City as well YTS apprentice whatever you want to call it uh, and uh, I got paid £12 a week and £12 a week for my mum for petrol money. So that tells you there's a little bit of a difference
0: <laughs>
3: in uh, what people are getting paid today. <laughs> I don't so think that's how it so started enough. for me. <laughs> uh, Graham?
4: Yeah, um, I'm glad you mentioned your school days there, uh, Nigel, because um, my next question is, um, obviously, when you are at school and you're into that... Being obsessed with football, you said you were like 14, 15, 16. I'm always interested who was your idol growing up, watching, you know, either watching on the stands or on the television? Who did you well, want I, to I, be I, like? You
3: believe know? it or not, I, well, I'm a Midlands boy, but there weren't many good teams that I, I wanted to support in the Midlands. So <laughs> um, uh, I was a, a mad Leeds United supporter, you know, particularly through uh, the 70s, uh, really, Bremley, Madeley, Lorimer uh that sort of uh you know that sort of era at Leeds where successful
4: period wasn't it for Leeds then Some yeah problems. they were yeah. i mean
3: they were such a fantastic footballing team um but they're also a little bit dirty as well so um <laughs> i loved you know i love that that period no way watching them play i mean you no know, no i'm a pussy cat so don't worry about that that was a that was a that was a dirty team but i just somehow I latched on to uh, to Leeds United, I just don't know how it, it came about. Maybe, as you mm. said, just because they were a good team and they were successful through that through that period. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, Leeds was Leeds was my team. You still support them? I still look out for their results, but I, I must admit, because um, I don't know whether I could call myself a, a supporter as such now, mm. but because I played so much football, I never really went to any live games. I've yeah. uh, never really had that opportunity I'd much rather play than I would go you know go and watch a, a a live game so I think when I you know started sort of professionally uh it sort of dipped a little bit but I still you know I still look for the results I still look for these results I still look for all the teams that I've uh, been associated for I'm still interested in in how they're getting on maybe over more over other other teams so let's start with your time at Wimbledon. Um, as a member of the Crazy
4: Gang, you were a four-time Player of the Year there and a vital member of the team. Um,
3: tell us a bit about your, your time there. Um, well, it's quite simple, really, because in the... So my second year at Birmingham, I got released There a change of manager. Jim Smith was the manager um, at the start of that second year, as he, as he was when I signed for Birmingham. But then he got the sack. Ron Saunders came in, uh, and basically, three quarters of the way through that season, he 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 told almost the whole uh, reserve team uh, squad that uh, you know they wouldn't be uh, retained for the following season. So, literally at the end of that season, I called Jim Smith, who had then gone to Oxford and said, look, I've been, I've been released by Birmingham. Can I come and train with you pre-season while I try and find a club? So I went to train. So that pre-season, following pre-season, I went to train with Oxford. And i have been there, what, three weeks, I think it was. And Jim said to me, like, listen, we'll give you a six-month contract anyway, but um, Wimbledon are looking for a left-back. Because at that time, the I think I'm right in saying that the Wimbledon players didn't get paid because of where they were coming up through the leagues, they weren't getting paid in the summer. So a lot of their players were going sort of Sweden and Norway to play. And the left-back had gone to, uh, I think it was Norway, uh, and they got into some sort of playoffs. Uh, and he wasn't back for the pre-season for the start of the season. So um, Jim said that like, obviously Wimbledon, Dave Bassett, would be interested if be to go down for a trial. So I went down there for uh, a month and then after that month's trial, uh, Wimbledon wanted to sign me. So I just, I, you know, I took that opportunity and, and I, I, I signed for Wimbledon. So, uh, yeah, it was, I suppose, a little bit of uh, look You've got to be, you've got to put yourself out there, but you need to occasionally, you need the, the right things to, uh, to come up for you as well. Um, so so I made that transfer from Oxford to uh to Wimbledon, and it cost Wimbledon a bottle of scotch. So I think it's uh <laughs> yeah, maybe it was a pretty successful bottle of scotch. <laughs> was Dave Bassett a scotch drinker then, Nigel? Uh, no, what happened was uh, is Jim Smith certainly was, and he loved a cigar, so um, we we gave him a bottle of scotch as a as, as a thank you. There was there was no signing on fees then, let me tell you. <laughs>
1: So Dennis Wise, John Fashanu, Wally Downs, Vinnie Jones. I mean, that's just a few of the people in that locker room. I mean, biggest prankster, hmm. one of the questions from one of the listeners was, was Martin, he asked, who was the biggest prankster and what was the best prank in the Wimbledon locker room?
3: Oh, God, I don't know about the the, the best, but I mean, you know, well, it's, it's, well <laughs> I mean, everything used to happen uh, at, at Wimbledon, really, because, I mean, we trained at, uh, uh, at Richmond, sort of Roehampton. Um, and it was literally, it was just a trucker's calf where you got chains. So there was a calf at the front, at the back was the changing rooms. But with Wimbledon, I mean, those guys were, you know, I don't know. It's just like a pub team, really. It was just, it was just hilarious. I mean, you dared, you would never, I'd never take, I'd always go in in a tracksuit. I'd never take anything else in with me because you'd get, you know, your shoes would get pinned to the ground. They would... You know your clothes would get cut up. Uh, we used to play uh, British Bulldog on a Friday. <laughs> Dave Bassett used to to name the team on a Friday, so you knew if you weren't in the team, you, it was it was uh, your honor to try and make, get someone injured so you could get into the team. So I'm not sure if ever uh, the team that got selected on the Friday was the team uh, the eleven players that actually started on the on the, on the Saturday. But I mean, those guys just got up to. You know everything, really. It's just it, just little pranks that weren't, you know, they don't sound uh, stupid or anything. You know, maybe if you are misbehaving or whatever, you get tied up to the tree. Uh, you wouldn't have a lot of clothes on, but uh, yeah, there was just just different, diff, you know, different things. Algae pan in the in the uh, in your boxer shorts was a was one of the favourite ones. Um, so yeah, there was quite there was quite a lot quite a lot going on, but I mean, we just had such a fantastic time because we scared a lot of teams with our approach with the way we were coming up um, through the leagues, really. So, I mean, it was, yeah, there was, uh, we used to stop off at the pub on the way back from away games. Uh, You know, we used to, we used to then get dropped off uh, at the Wimbledon ground, which uh, on a Saturday was a nightclub. So you can imagine what, what was happening then. So, I think it was a different, completely different culture, if I'm honest, to, uh, to what it's like now. And we would never get away with what we did uh, uh, then. But, uh, yeah, it was it was just, I don't know, really. It was just a dream to be part of that. But it was, uh, when you look at it, it was slightly wacky as well. I don't know if it's a bit of a cliche, but the old,
4: uh, when, you, when you was at Wimbledon, you know, they pump the ball to the big man up front and hope for the best. Um, was that a myth or was it as, as straightforward as that? Because that's the thing people got with Wimbledon from back in the day. It was just basic kick and rush. So if it was a thing, a lot of people, a lot of teams should have maybe done it, you know? So what was, the, what was the tactics like? Because it did seem like that back in the late 80s, early 90s, you know? I think, I think kick and
3: rush is probably too technical for us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I might. No, what we used to do is, um, I mean, you could call it long ball, you could call it kick and rush, you could call it what you want. But they had a statistician uh, they used to work on um, how many times you lost the ball in your own half, how many times you got the ball into the final third, and they used to break all that down, goals conceded, uh, goals scored from positions. So basically, we you, you, you're probably right. We played, we played longer balls from our own half, but we played them down into the channels or into yeah. the centre-forward. And then anything over the halfway line, uh really, we could try and be as creative as we wanted to be, but the main aim was at the end of all that was was cross into the box uh, yeah and it, was it always... did seem yeah, yeah so I
4: was say it did seem very effective at the time that's what i mean i mean look, when you see the formations and the way teams play now, I know it's a different era, but it did seem very effective you know when you did play Wimbledon when you, a team you you know there was like, oh, we've got Wimbledon today it's going to be a hard game but when you think of the way they play do you think well i think think
3: we were we were physical we a lot you know we did have a bit a fairly big and strong team with a lot of big characters i think we just frightened teams really before uh we started the games nobody really wanted to (coughs) play us because as you say um you know they knew they were in for quite a physical quite a physical game listen uh, we took a few wallopings uh, along the way, but the best thing about that team was it was just literally forgotten there and then. Yeah. And then we came again next week. I mean, I think I can remember one of the seasons we came up, I think we got beat two or three times by five or six, but we still got promoted. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. just, it was just ridiculous how much belief that we had uh, in what we were going to do. So, yeah, if you like, I mean, I'm quite happy to call it kick and rush. It's quite a polite way of putting it for us, if you like. But um yeah, we were we were just very very effective, yeah, uh, at, at, at what we did, and we were a long ball team. But we, I'd say to you, it was that was out of um, stats, really. You know, if anyone thinks that stats are have just come out, well, the stats are just different to what they did when when I played. But they had someone that worked on that. Uh, all the time, and where you know, you used to analyse other teams and where most goals were scored, and yeah. we were almost trying to replicate that uh, and get the balls into those areas um, as quick as possible uh, and as much as we could throughout the ninety minutes. And that was that was how simple uh, the Wimbledon game was.
1: So in nineteen eighty seven, you get a move to Arsenal. So you won most of your honours under George Graham. Looking back at your career, your most successful period as a um, and trophies was under George Graham at Arsenal. And then, obviously, in '96 Wenger came in. What was the feeling in the squad when he came in? Because, obviously, a Bruce Ryok in between for a short period. Then Wenger comes in, who's an unknown manager at the time. Mm-hmm. Very different to what the Premier League knew at that stage. What was the first reaction in the locker room prior to Wenger coming in? But hearing- well, I th- David Dean had made the announcement that Arsene Wenger was coming okay. in. And
3: I think you'll know from uh, all the press as well, is nobody really knew who Arsene Wenger was. Uh, but I think when you meet the man, when you, I've said on many, many occasions, uh, I think when I did the first one, maximum of two training sessions, I just knew that I needed to be part of, uh, you know, his his squad really, because it was just so different. Uh, it was short, it was sharp, it was intense. Uh, and if you went through into the, the pre-seasons, he was so ahead of his time because... Uh, he, he was everything was on a stopwatch uh, distances that you were covered in pre-season for running uh, the older players would get you know uh, a different amount of time to complete those uh, running sessions so the old idea was that everybody no matter what, whether you were 18 or whether you were 38 the idea was that everybody was working at, if he wanted you to be working at 80% everybody was working at 80% if it was ninety or hundred, everybody would be at ninety or hundred. So you used to adjust your running times, uh, but then at times as well, you wouldn't just be doing out and out running. You would do, be doing fitness work with the ball. You know, you'd, you know, if you were a defender, it would be, you know, collecting the ball, uh, passing it into midfield, continuing with your run and crossing. So it was just, it was just so different to anything else that I'd done throughout throughout my career. Um, and I think it just showed in his, you know, in his style of play. He basically, when he came in, I think he, he brought in quality players, midfield and forwards. Um, and, he, you know, he worked on the advanced, if you like, game, passing and movement combination play. And he just let us organise ourselves defensively. Uh, to go out and play. So he just he was just saying to him, basically have no fear, just go out and enjoy yourself. Uh, it was just you know when you're you're getting into your later years like like I am, it was just like, oh here we go. This is happy day. So uh, it was it was a great time to be at Arsenal. It was just completely different to to any other uh, manager that I'd really worked under before.
2: But um did everyone buy into it when Wenger first turned up or was there a people a bit 50-50 about these methods because obviously no one had ever seen it before.
3: No, I think uh, from I think everyone just felt it was they were just being freed up, if 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 you like, because George Graham was sensational at organisation and discipline, and it was almost so. I mean, we should never forget that that period. I mean, he was amazing at, at, at what he did, but it was also once you've done that for a while, then you try something else. Uh, Bruce Riot for me just completely didn't didn't work. It's uh, just a manager that I think I really Didn't understand What he What he really wanted uh, But When Arsene Wenger Came It was just A whole different You know It was as if The light switched Back on And your The hunger was there And you You just went again I don't know anybody um, That Disliked What Arsene Wenger Was doing You know And I think Testament to The man Is that Have you ever Heard of anyone Slagging him off When, when they left nah. when, when they, I mean, you know, right. you know, you know. Eventually, I I left and was moved on, but um, you know, I would I didn't have a bad word to say about Arsene Wenger, and, and, and you know, and I, I still don't. He was just, he was incredible in that in that early period with the way that he treated players and and the quality of player that he brought to the football club.
2: Obviously, the foundation was there because you played in the most famous back five of Premier League or any English football. In my eyes, it was the best back five ever. And I'm sure many people will agree, but it, it gave, that gave the license to uh, for obviously Wenger to come in and play a more expansive type of football because the foundation was already there, bought by John uh, George Graham.
3: Uh, yes, to a degree, you're right, but there was a there was a big rumor going around that several members of the staff had told him that he would need to disband the back four. He thought that uh, he was told that they were getting too old. Uh, but I think he made you know he made his own judgment through training uh, and games. So I suppose in the, in a way you you may be right, but in a little way slightly wrong as well because he was his own man. I think he would make it well every, he is his own man he makes his own decisions. he doesn't take orders from from anybody. so he made his own decisions to keep that back for uh, once he he realized the intensity that that uh, we had. The togetherness that we had, and you're right. I think he used that to then develop um, the attacking side of the game, which I have to say he did. You know, he did brilliantly with the uh, w- with with
1: the players that he brought in. We did a podcast early on in the season about Arsenal versus United, the rivalry period, mm. and I think that. George Graham's period was very successful. It's underrated in terms of what he achieved at the time. I think Wenger came in with and and did create a different uh, style of football and brought the continent to England. And as you said about the drinking culture, all those things kind of changed. But do you think he underachieved over his period, Wenger, compared to what um, Graham achieved in his period? You won one league title under under Wenger, uh, obviously over a, a long period. But do you think... He had two half of his career. He had a very good start with you guys, then got to the Invincibles and it seemed to wane quite quickly after that. What's your opinion working with both men? Uh, well, I, I,
3: we were. if you look at George Graham, he rebuilt Arsenal, if you like. He got rid of most of the senior players. So again, he brought in players, younger players, hungry players that he wanted to work with and the system that he wanted to do. And as, as I said to you, it was quite regimented. He had... Uh, But his organisation was absolutely sensational. Uh, I would have said at the time that nobody, not even the diehard Arsenal supporters uh, of those seasons of 89 and 91, would have said we were anywhere near favourites to win the league titles uh, that season because we were a relatively new team. Um, So I, I think, you know, George Graham if you like, I call that what I used to call then the, uh, the modern times for Arsenal, started to recreate the success. But uh, in terms of, if you want, in terms of style, uh, and also being very, very successful, I think, you know, Arsene Wenger was successful up to 06, which was coincided with moving to the new stadium as well. Uh, was also, you know, I retired in 03, but... Even when I left in 2000, I think it was a sensational period to be part of the football club, not only as a player, but also as a supporter as well. You know, get okay, lost the Champions League final in, in, in that season. But you know, it's a, you know, it's it was still a, a massive achievement to get there. But everything that Arsene Wenger had provided up, up to that period was, I think, was was sensational. And, if, and you know, I think they're both managers. Uh, different styles, but one started it, if you like, and if you if and one the other manager took over in Arsene Wenger, um, and up to 06, it it looked as if Arsenal were just going to keep ploughing forward and forward and be uh, be the team that was going to be the team that was going to take on what if you like the elite of Europe. But the one disappointment for me in in um, I suppose Arsene Wenger's team is I thought we had the quality but we never really delivered in Europe. And that would be my one big regret. And I can't answer that question as to why we didn't do that. But no, I think to answer your question, I think Arsene Wenger's first period, if you like, to 06, uh, was was incredible. Uh, And then I have my own thoughts on what went wrong from there because uh, they moved to the new stadium and it almost seems as if it started to fall apart gradually. Uh, from there on in and if you look at the players that they had before they moved to the emirates and then after that um i don't think there is many player that i could think of that would uh get in. there's a few that would get into the squad and and be part of let's say the 89 91 and 98 teams um uh, but you know a lot of those teams from 06 onwards didn't rival didn't rival any of those teams for pure belief, consistency, and and deliverance of, of of titles. It it just started to go backwards for Arsenal.
2: It all started to spiral when David Dean left.
3: Uh yes,
1: just about yeah. the
2: same thing.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think so. David you De- Listen, he was he was around all the time. He was a land the training ground, but he wasn't in your way, if that made sense. So he was keeping an eye on what was going on, but he wasn't. It didn't feel as if he was interfering. Uh, You know, he knew his job. I think he, I think he was heavily involved in uh, some of the the transfers that uh, Arsene Wenger wanted. So, um, yeah, it 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 appears that it's you know David Dean leaving was, if you like, one of the reasons why I think maybe the club uh, took a different route. But uh, you know, these things happen. Uh, and you you know you just have to you just have to deal
1: with it and move on do you think that wenger should have left slightly sooner because the board there's obviously some problem between the board and wenger at some stage whether it's he didn't want to spend the money or the ball didn't want to give him the money or what it would be do you think they needed a new manager to come in and say uh
3: i think it, i think he's uh yeah he has a love affair with arsenal and i think that's why you find that he's not taken another job in a in a premier league um you know and i think he's very disappointed with the way that he left uh and i'm sure he's got a lot of stories that a lot of people would uh love to know with regards to restrictions that he had on spending when they moved to the to the new stadium i think listen i think it's i think it's uh uh divided really i think even with his team's the standard had slipped uh, but then I would say to you, and, and a lot of people blame Arsene Vega for that. I, I mean, I, I personally don't. Uh, but if you look what he did, you know, continue to get us inside the top four, which personally I don't think is an achievement. You know, I want to see my team going for titles, um, you know, so it's not all about just finishing inside the top four, but. If you're running a club as a business, it is because the Champions League money is so important uh, to them. And you look where we are now. I think, in a way, it still shows what a, what a good job our Venga was doing because you know uh, the managers since then have, have found it very, very difficult to to even get into the top four. Yeah. So, listen, I think a lot of people. I listen. You know, I do a lot of work at, at the club on match days. I listen to a lot of people. A lot of people say he stayed too long. Maybe he did, uh, but a lot of people blame him for what's going on. I certainly don't blame him for what's going on because the board can make those decisions. I actually think that the board sat there and while he was keep, Wenger was keeping them in the top four, they were completely happy. Um, uh, so, you know, maybe they needed to to look um, at a different direction earlier and saying you know oh this is great but we want to be we want to be back to what we were doing which is challenging for uh for for titles but you know i i if i'm honest with you i just you know i just don't know with with this board what what they really want from
1: from my football club uh it's it's quite bewildering at times the Man United-Arsenal rivalry. Um, and we could do a whole week on these games, but obviously we haven't got all day. Some would argue, myself included, it was you and Brian mcclaire that was the real start of the great rivalry uh, when you take out Dennis Irma with a tackle and then it erupts. And then from that moment up until about 2006, that was the biggest rivalry in, fo- in English football and if not in European football for the amount of moments that those games had.
3: <laughs> uh, well, I think from Arsenal supporters I'm loved... <laughs> and for Man United supporters, I'm hated. So, I mean, it actually started a little bit before because we had the cup game against uh Man United at uh Highbury, and Brian McClare missed the penalty. Uh, which I said something to I can't even remember what I said, if I'm <laughs> quite honest, after he you know, after he missed. And that was, I've always said to me, you know, you shouldn't be, you know, I shouldn't get involved in those things, but occasionally. Uh, I did. Anyway, I did. And it, it all sort of kicked off from there. And then the, the one that most people remember is obviously the, the, the tackle on the Brian McClare uh, incident. But I also feel as well is that we felt that we were the team that that felt that Man United were going to be a, uh, one of our big rivals. And it, it proved that going forward. And those two teams were like two juggernauts going head to head. Both believed they could beat each other. Both were not going to give an, uh, an inch. And a lot of time, those games turned out to be crucial games. So the slice, this incident, turned out to be more major than maybe uh, what it should be. But, um, yeah, I absolutely loved them. Absolutely. You can tell by the smile on my face. <laughs> that's what football that's what football's all about. It's, it's putting yourself in situations, believing you're the best, wanting to play against the best. Uh, and on that period of time, I think, you know, I think if you like 89 and early sort of 90s, Liverpool were probably the team. But then Manchester United, for me, as I remember, it started to be the team that really, if we want to be the best, we're going to have to overtake. Uh, and they were, I think, throughout my career, Manchester United were a benchmark. Uh, and along the way, Arsenal was, managed to not, Knock them off the top of the crown, on occasions, and that's why I believe um, those uh, those games were so explosive. Um, you know, and I'm not the only one to be involved with uh, with May United because Cesc Fabregas is very good at throwing pizzas. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so, so you know, I'm not I'm not I'm not my only one. And uh, you know, I think for me the iconic moment out of all this, the bit I remember best was watching is uh Arsene Wenger standing on the dugout at Old Trafford with his with his arms aloft so i think it just shows you the intense uh and the rivalry between uh bet- between the two teams but yeah if you uh if you want to play me like the rest of the main's Night supporters and and sir alex then you know i think i'm old enough and big enough to uh to take that
1: what was your personal favourite Man United Arsenal game that you played in?
3: I mean, if you had to pick one, uh, when we when we beat you at Old Trafford in March '98 with the run we were on, which we thought set us up to win the title because we knew we couldn't lose that game uh, to you. Um, I just love those. I just love those games because they were so intense. You know, they were twenty-two great players going head to head and. Not one of those players would give an inch, and they all believed that their team was 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 going to win, and that's what made them so so epic and so and so fascinating, and why I think a lot of other people, apart from Man United and Arsenal supporters, wanted to watch them because they realised that that something might happen. <laughs> They're quite explosive within those games uh, as well. They were they. Were, I couldn't pick out really. You know, I wouldn't like to pick out one game, but I suppose from an Arsenal point of view, the March game would be pivotal in us winning the double in '98, and for yourselves, beating us in the in the in the semi-final uh, with Giggs's goal was uh, was what Manchester United supporters will uh, will remember. But those those games were just so intense and so brutal at times. It was just, uh, but. You can see I'm smiling as I'm talking about it. So they were just a pleasure to just a pleasure to play in. At Arsenal, who was the best player player in training? Uh well, I never worried about who was in best in training. Uh, but Burkamp was the pinnacle for me to play with on a match day. Listen, I've seen some good players in training. So you put them on a pitch and they fall apart because you haven't got 72, 100,000 fans watching you in, if you get to a final. Uh, but Burkamp was just uh, absolutely incredible. Just the way that he conducted himself, uh, but his ability just spoke for itself. But his appreciation of players around him was was just it's just immense. Yeah, and I put him down as my all-time greatest Arsenal player that I've played with, uh, and solely because I only played for uh, a year with Thierry and Thierry wasn't the player that he turned out to be in that first season And I think yeah, you know when, when I left Arsenal um you know he he then sort of came along uh, came alive sort of thing and he I you know took for watching somebody uh, I'd put you know I'd put Henri up there with with uh, Burkamp, but playing with Burkamp was just it was just it's just like living in a different world also going back a bit further um obviously
4: you playing left back, you had um, Mark Overmars in front of you. Yeah. But before Overmars came um, as a, as a child, I remember a certain Dutch player coming over called Glenn Helder. Yeah. Um, I remember there was a bit of a rave of you about him, about him being the next best thing. Um. I, what I'd like to know is what was he like? I mean, what happened to him? I, was, I remember him playing like one good game in 10. I mean, he was supposed to be technically very good, um, we spoke to Brian Dean about Thomas Broline when he came over, and it obviously didn't work for him. Was that the same sort of thing with Glenn helder because he was quite disappointing in
3: the end you know yeah i think I think so I think he I think the i think the the maybe the culture and the intensity uh, of the games was maybe too much for him at, at the time okay um yeah he he came over. He, I don't say if he was arrogant, but maybe a little bit. He might have came over that way. Um, And I'm not sure he really wanted to... I don't think he really understood the Arsenal way and and fitted into that. Uh, I think we didn't really fall out, uh, uh, Glenn and myself, but I think we had a bit of a difficulty in knowing what each other wanted. Yeah. Uh, I think he thought he was in the team just to, it seems a bit crazy really, but with with George Graham, you know, the, the wingers had to provide going forward, but they also had to be alive to come and sit back in. Be very I'd,
4: selfish, basically. Sorry, Nigel, very yeah, stable,
3: yeah. selfish play, would you say? Yeah, a, a little bit. And he was, I remember we did one training training game and he, he had a little run. He, he put a cross in, and then he just walked back, and I just sort of looked at him and said, "You know, that's not gonna. That's not gonna work. Here. You're not just gonna get away with that." And I, I think he just sort of looked at me as if to say, "You know, who do who do you think you're talking to?"
2: Mm-hmm. And it
3: was just, I think there was, you know, it wasn't any. We didn't really have a falling out, but I would say that he wasn't someone that I really got along with in terms of playing styles. Yeah. I never felt that that. I never felt that we both were covering each other's back. I, I just felt that he was looking at one side of the game whereas yeah. we'd all we'd all been brought up on both sides defense and attack and I, I don't think really he was he was tuned into that or whether he really wanted to uh, t- to do that too much if I'm honest with you.
2: Yeah, so nice. What was the um what was the dressing room like in like a North London derby or a big Man United game? Like Wenger's known for being cool and calm but was the dressing room fired up before you went out or did he like yeah, to keep I everyone think, calm?
3: Yeah, I mean like the intensity of the uh the Man United games because I think the challenges that were ahead of you but, but uh the North London derby was completely different because I always call that a game for the fans, a game you must not lose you know, you're thinking about if it was traditionally played on a Saturday, uh, if you lost, then Sunday and then Monday you had to go back to work. So, you know, your supporters wouldn't want to really go back to work. So for me, the the, the North London derby was so intense, but it was more intense for, for me, for the supporters. And you had to do absolutely everything that you could to make sure that you know they were they were smiling and happy after the game and they could go into work on a monday morning uh, and not make up some excuse <laughs> for not get for not going in but yeah i think the the intensity the intensity to start with of the north london derby was i've never seen anything like it it was just incredible
2: yeah that happened to me today because i thought we were going to pick tottenham to seventh yesterday when they were when they were one nil down to Leicester, and uh, yeah, and then Tottenham gone one four two, so they went ahead of us. I had to go into work. My boss is the yes. Tottenham I, fan. He was griefing me today.
3: Yeah, see so, you know, I, I, I get that, and I, um, but I'm a little bit more like, but yeah, I mean, but comf- uh, I don't know what it is. The comf- uh, what <laughs> yeah. is this cup? You Europa Conference t- League? Yeah, comf- you know what I mean. <laughs> to be quite honest with you, you, and you should never, ever, you should never, ever really say this, but I think personally, if Michel Arteta stays in charge, and I, and I hope he does, then I think it will help him with the training that he can do with the squad to get his ways over um, to the team. Because if you think about the intensity of this season, those guys would have never really had a lot of time to train. It would have all just been recovery and preparation for the next game. Um, and, uh, you know, it's the, the pre-season uh, and working in the week that he he will have now will really tell us what Mikel Arteta... I believe what Mikel Arteta is all about. Listen, I, I always want my club to be in Europe, but I think in terms of development for Mikel Arteta, and I hope he's still there and I hope we get a number of changes to the squad I think that's going to be so so crucial um, for us uh, uh, next season Famous Arsenal Tuesday Club about, oh, it's, uh, it's very very difficult because I'm not a, you know I'm not a great sort of storyteller I wasn't a regular member of the Tuesday Club uh, okay. but what used to happen was that um so, if we didn't have a game in the week, we used to do with George Gray, we used to do fitness session at Highbury around the pitch, up the terracing, or, you know, and, uh, and did, well, up the terracing to start with before it changed to uh, all seater. And then we used to go into uh, and do an indoor area. We used to have a five or six-a-side competition. We were almost finished by 12, 12:30 on, on a Tuesday. So then, everybody, uh, and almost everybody, then <laughs> would used to either get a taxi in or used to get the train into uh, to uh, Arsenal, to Highbury, and then from there we all used to arrange to uh, to go out. So, I mean, for my memories, is there was a fair amount of players going out <laughs> each week. And then we all usually we'd first of all we'd go out and we'd just go TJI's and have a uh, light lunch or something with a few beers, and then everybody would just start dispersing to wherever they wanted to go. So you know, different players wouldn't want to stay out, they would they would or they'd want to go and do different things, so everybody would just sort of mix and and, and disperse and do really what they, they wanted to do. Some were gone by 10 o'clock, some were still there at 6 o'clock in the morning. So <laughs> it was, uh, it was a bit of a, it was just a bit of a free-for-all. But the one thing I will say about all that is it gave us a fantastic team spirit. Yeah. Uh, and what happened was is uh, George Graham started to get, uh, I think, wind of that something was happening um, and he, he, he couldn't quite work out what was going on. Uh, so what he used to do is he, he uh, employed his assistant Stuart Hewson to be detective. So the lads had gone out one day. And they'd actually gone this time. They hadn't gone into town. I think they'd gone into Potter's Bar into a into a wine bar in Potter's Bar, and um, so they've been having a few drinks. And then all of a sudden, it was quite a, a cold uh, day, and the window was sort of frosted up. And they could just see this bloke outside, wiping the window and trying to uh, peer inside. And then they realised that it was uh, Stuart Houston, the assistant manager. So the lads went and grabbed him and dragged him inside and then got him a beer and then, uh, of course, obviously he was there for George. George was very, very strict. He was quite a disciplinarian. So um, anyway, he, he, he had a he had a beer and that, and he just said he just said to the lads, "I'll just tell George that I couldn't find you, uh, and we'll just have to, you know, we'll just make out." That's because he knew he was going to be in the shit as well. And, uh, the, 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 the lads, one of the lads would grass you up, but uh, yeah, I mean. I, it wasn't anything specific that was funny that would happen um, from those nights out. It was just that it was, it was, it was named the Tuesday club. um, And I suppose if you like the so-called members, uh, Steve Bond, (laughs) Merce, Tony Adams to to, uh, name three, were probably uh, the biggest drinkers. Uh, out, out of that group, so you just had to negotiate your way <laughs> around those three uh, and try and slip away <laughs> if you didn't really want to get caught off. in you know, a lot of heavy drinking, but um, I, I said to you, for me, it was it gave us a great uh, team uh, building exercise, if you like, camaraderie. Um, but yeah, I mean, but we didn't have a game. We weren't. We were never in on the Wednesday after. Um, so you you could recover on the Wednesday. You were back in training on the Thursday, um, uh, and then I thought none of the lads were drinking after that. But now we find out from Tony that <laughs> I think he was drinking all the time. So uh, <laughs> I don't think it was just a. I think it was Monday to Friday club for him. I yeah. don't think it was just a Tuesday club. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it was just it's just a something that we we did out of habit if you like but it it gave us that it just gave us that togetherness it was yeah you know, it was it, it but it was it i think if i'm honest with you i think a lot of other teams were doing the same thing we're not we weren't doing anything that none of the other because i don't believe we would have been able to survive if we were the only team doing that and then when you talk to players that played around your era now when they're retired they all say they were going out and drinking x amount of pints. So yeah. you were just all that was the culture of of uh, football around that time. Yeah. Just briefly sticking with the drinking
4: culture, um, I read um, an article, done a bit of research, and you went on um, the Arsenal at the time. You went on a pre-season tour to Austria. Now this intrigued me a little bit. After the games you played, apparently yourself and the rest of the English lads went out drinking where some of the foreign lads were going to cafes, drinking coffee and smoking untold cigarettes. Is that true? Yeah. What's the, <laughs> well, I don't get the smoking thing because to me, that's
3: worse. Well, yeah, what? well, yeah, I you mean, know? Was, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of who the players were smoked, but some of the, some of the guys, I mean, they just, the foreign guys couldn't believe what we were doing, but I mean, yeah. we weren't under, to be quite honest with with Arsenal, we weren't, it wasn't like with George Graham, we weren't drinking the amount of, Arsene Wenger just gave us a respect he never really set any rules you know if he didn't want you to do something it would just be taken taken away like so you know as soon as uh, the thing came out with um, with 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 Tony and then he understood what was going on so he didn't open the he, he closed the players bar after the game oh, okay um, so you know he just tried to change the the, the culture but, did you get rid of the ashtrays as well? Uh, well, uh, it's hard to get rid of an ashtray in in the dressing room toilets, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, but uh, listen, it's just, um it, but he he just to be quite honest, Aston Villa just trusted you. I mean, we'd go on pre-season training and we'd do a lot of training. And once we'd finished, well, sometimes we did three training sessions in a day. Once we'd finished the training sessions, if you wanted to. You know, to go for a walk and uh, uh, and 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 have a beer later on in the evening. You you were never told you can't you can't do that. But I think his method was on. You know, if you're gonna start down in six, seven, eight, nine, ten pints, then you're gonna be infecting your teammates around you, and that's that's really mm. what he worked on respect for each other over over anything else. But you're but you're right. Yeah, we would. You know, we would sometimes go out and and. And, and grab a beer and, uh, you know, some of the other guys, the French guys and that would <laughs> go and grab a coffee and, and smoke a cigarette. But, I mean, Caffeine it's, and tobacco, just, yeah. <laughs> it's
1: just just, it's just, the way it was. Do you think that, with, obviously, the changing coming in at the back end of your career, you started to see the more foreign influences coming in. Was that a clear, in the locker room, a clear divide quite quickly? As you were saying, again, on a, on a Tuesday night, those players wouldn't necessarily come in. Did it harm the, the, the team bond at all?
3: no i think they uh, completely understood i mean they were uh, i think if you talk to Thierry Henry he talks about how once he joined training and um, was around the club the passion that the english players had for their club so no i mean are you talking about you're talking about different cultures you're accepting uh, their culture listen we're all like comfy blankets We'd rather associate and be with people that, that we're more comfortable with rather than try and integrate I think into you know a, a different a different culture but the French guys that uh, came in uh yeah we did we, we mixed and we did we did talk but obviously if they went out they would probably be more together than, than with us but mm-hmm. the most important thing was is when we were on the pitch and when we were on the pitch we were definitely all together. Uh, there was no, there was no doubt about that because uh, if one player didn't think he was together, he'd be told pretty quickly what he needed to do to 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 uh, to fit in. So um, there was there was there was no divide. If you like, there was a difference in culture and what we did, but once we once we were focusing on the game. We were together as 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 one unit. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was there was just never any there was never any
1: discrepancies. Did you find you tried to corrupt some of the foreign players when they come in? You know, you had the Tuesday night club, the Wednesday night club, the Thursday night club. Was there any people that come on and you thought, right, we spoke to our players and they got taken under the wing. So Stephen Henshaw was taken under the wing by Colin Hendry and corrupted to our English ways. Was there anyone that came to your club and you thought, We'll take him under our wing, and it was well, sh-
3: there was no need to, because Giles Grimondi was straight in there. He loved it.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I, I think he was English. I don't, I don't, but I mean, no, we we we, uh, we didn't we didn't need to really. And then you get the role in reversal of that. I remember uh, when Jermaine Pennant uh, joined us. I think he was sixteen uh, when he when he first joined us, and he went and sat at the back of the coach. And Pat Wright just literally grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and led him to the back of the coach and said, "You get to sit up to there when you've played 150 games for Arsenal. You don't get to sit back. You don't get to sit up there with those guys. So you get a role. Re- you get a uh, role reversal. But I think the one that yeah you know, really fit fit in straight away was was uh, was Gilles Grimondi because yeah you know, I think he was an Englishman really anyway. If, if I'm honest with you.
2: Uh, Nigel, we were talking about in another pod a couple of weeks ago about the FA Cup and things that we missed from the FA Cup. Um, the old football songs, obviously you usually involved in the old hot stuff one. Uh, and How often do you play that in your car now?
3: Uh, well, I've got, it, I've got it on my
2: phone still.
3: <laughs> well, the best thing about that is if you're talking about the one where they did the video of that with uh, Paul Davis dancing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean uh, that was the best video come song that yeah. I ever remember I mean literally they just plied us with lager before that <laughs> and then we did that and then they wanted someone to do a solo dance and Devo was the one that that got volunteered or, or volunteered and it was just I mean you can imagine when you've had a few beers I mean and you, you're sitting there watching someone. Someone doing that. I mean, the lads were just in, in stitches. But some of those things were. I mean, it's just different to do as a as a group. I mean, a lot of time we weren't really to be quite honest, that bothered whether we did those sort of uh, songs or or not. Uh, but it, it, usually, it, if if they got you to go, it, it involved having uh, a few beers along the way. So I suppose the lads just uh, yeah, they they would be happy with that. But. Put yourself forward to dance or sing certainly wasn't uh, high on my uh, uh, on my uh, recommendation of lists to do, that's for sure. That's probably why you see any of those videos, you'll see me hiding away at the, uh, at the back, particularly if you hear my voice trying to sing as well. Oh, so you're not
2: going to give us a sing song now?
3: Huh? <laughs> I'd, I'd love to, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately I'm running out of
1: time. <laughs> <laughs> Worst dressed player at Arsenal when you was there? Who, who came in with the most hilarious gear and who, who had control of the music? Uh, music was very,
3: very different because started to, uh, you know, imagine we started to bring, uh, music into uh, the dressing room. So anybody really wanted, wanted to, I'm not musical at all, if you're honest. So, you know, I'm a bit more into easy listening, uh, music, if I'm honest, but so all the different uh, players used to bring in different, um uh, different bits of, uh, music. I'm just trying to think of, uh, Dressing. I mean, if you look back at some of the clothing we had in that period of time, I mean, it was pretty naff. Wasn't it? If you look back, I think we were all. I don't know. I'm trying to just think. I mean, when I went to West Ham, obviously Paolo Di Canio was. I mean, he was pucker. I mean, he just looked like he was going out every single day. He came into, to to training. I don't know who he was sponsored by, but all those Italian gear that he had on i mean he just looked a million dollars every uh every, every single every single time so i wouldn't mind being uh of having his tailor to uh to uh sort me out through uh through the week as well but i don't, I don't know just i don't really i can not really remember who who was sort of in control of uh the music i think different players like mickey thomas i think dave rowcastle at that period of time would we're bringing in little bits uh, of stuff along uh, along the way as well, and I'm just trying to think who it was. Do you know what? If I'm honest with you, I can't even remember who it was with uh, when Arsene Wenger came in. Uh, who, who brought the who brought the music in? There's no way it'd be Ray Parlour, that's for sure.
4: <laughs> you've mentioned West Ham then, and you've mentioned Paolo Di Canio, so I think you know what's coming next. Um, you said you said in previous interviews that you didn't have any issues with him. Obviously, you ended up playing with him. But the actual Sheffield Wednesday Arsenal game, when you approached him, um, what happened? I mean, what was going through your mind as he was let going off the pitch? You went towards him. Well, was I was asking to take if, it from there, please.
3: <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I was asking if he'd get the shower ready for me, um, and I don't think he was too happy with that. And then for a split second, I mean, I have to admit, I thought, yeah, you're going to get smacked here. Um, so I thought he was going to smack me. So. No normal person, unless you are six foot six and built like a brick lighthouse, you're not just going to you're not just going to stand there. So um, I'd probably describe myself as I like to light the fuse paper a few times, but get to the back as quick as I could. Uh, but unfortunately, I was on my own on that occasion. And listen, I I thought he was going to hit me, and I just ducked ducked out the out the way, and nothing came um but i mean i pe- people make you sick of that question to be fair aren't you well yes and no because <laughs> i mean i get a lot of stuff i mean people if people get narky with me they always bring that up occasionally and they expect me to re- rel- uh, to react to it but you what i've watched it loads of times uh watched it with my daughter loads of times and we're always laughing and wetting ourselves about you know, what i did so it's listen i always say you've got to laugh at yourself it's something i shouldn't have really uh got involved in but but i did um and yes i thought i was going to get a smack uh and being five foot eight uh and about 11 stone at that time there was no way i was going to stand there so um i I ducked out of the way. I thought I ducked out of the way pretty well to be to be honest with you. But, <laughs> but as I said said on many occasions, you've probably seen it that it's brilliant. When I went to West Ham, I got on so well with uh with with Paolo. He's but within football, he's you know he's such an in, intense guy, so uh I didn't I didn't have any I didn't have
1: any problems with him at all. What was he like to train with compared to someone like Burkamp? Um well i talked about this the other week actually about
3: uh he's a fantastic player um but what i always asked him uh, you know he, he says he turned down a move to i found out when we were doing the interview uh with somebody else the other week saying that he reckons in his book he says he got he turned down manchester united and because yeah. that would have been my question to him would be why did one of the, why did you not go to one of the big clubs because he had that ability uh, mentality uh, maybe yeah maybe uh and he, but he was very very intense in training if anybody was messing around he hated it uh, many many well I'm not the same many occasions that's wrong but on a few occasions when I was at west ham he would just walk off training go in get a shower blue ferrari was out the drive and then he'd come back the next morning as if nothing had happened and the first time it happened, I was, like, looking at the lads and going, what's happening? And he's just like, oh, he does it all the time. He'll be back in the morning. It's all right. And then he'd just disappear. And he he would. He'd be back in the morning. Everybody would be his best friend again. Uh, and then he'd start training. But he just didn't like certain training sessions. If he wasn't happy, he, was, mate, he wasn't staying there. He was off. He was gone. Uh, and he said, oh, he'd rant in Italian. I think he was probably saying... You're wasting my time, and I need to go and get a new suit. And he was, he was <laughs> off, uh, and you'd, you'd see him. <laughs> you'd, you'd still be at training You'd see his car disappear down the drive, and he'd be gone.
2: Yeah, no I've got. I can't. I can't have this interview and not ask. I've obviously been an Arsenal fan. I've got fabulous goals that I can remember. We've got to talk about your goal against Chelsea. Petit went in very bravely and very powerfully. Vieira. Winterberg. Oh, what a goal! Nigel Winterburn! Unbelievable. When you just just let it rip and it's gone top corner. How was your feeling after that?
3: Uh, well, you, if you clip running that clip, I think you'll find that I put my foot straight through the hoarding board. So that probably tells <laughs> you what I felt Back To be quite honest, I didn't realise it was so late. And if you watch that clip back, Dennis Wise gets body checked, I think, by Manu Petit. Because I was actually looking at that time to make the pass uh and then Dennis I see Dennis Wise slip over so I just took it forward and then when I took it forward I just knew I was just going to hit it and it's just one of those things that when you hit sometimes you got you know it's going in mm. and once I hit it I you know I knew it was I knew it was I knew it was going in so uh yeah um uh yes yeah, a few Chelsea supporters mentioned it to me so it brings a brings a smile to my face and each year that I get asked about it, it just edges a yard back. So I think we're up to about 40 yards at the moment. And actually, it was probably about 22 or 23 yards out. So every every year someone mentions it, it just edges that little bit uh, further out. But one of the, uh, well, it's not, it's not, probably it's not funny for, for you guys, but we, uh, we got asked by a TV company to uh, go to uh, the Arsenal training ground and recreate goals that you'd scored and they tried to get me to recreate the Chelsea goal (laughs) I literally I've got a I've got a bad ankle Uh, and I'm talking about a few years ago and I couldn't even kick the ball twenty-three yards. <laughs> We're trying to replicate this goal. I think I ended up at the end hitting it from about sixteen yards out to try replicate replicate this goal. I mean, it's just <laughs> it's just ridiculous. The power that you lose when you retire from when you're playing so quickly is uh, is is incredible. But uh, yes, thank you very much. Um, I agree
1: with you. It was a fantastic goal, England. We can't not talk about the two England caps. Uh, against Italy and Germany and we've asked players about maybe having more caps or you know we understand everyone appreciates the caps that they got uh, and we we always intrigued we had an underrated 11 team from the 90s and your name was one of the players that came up and one of the lads who's not here today based it on not enough England caps. Um, what was your time in England like and do you think that not deserve because a lot of players haven't liked the word deserve but do you think he was overlooked? A little bit too much over that period, and Stuart Pierce was like a shoe in because he was Stuart Pierce.
3: Uh, do I think I was overlooked? Well, if I'm arrogant, then I'll say yes. <laughs> but I think listen, I, I played with Stuart at West Ham. So and I watched him play. He's a terrific player. I think my biggest problem were, if you like, the team that I was playing at Arsenal that time, winning the winning the titles, and we were super competitive um and I think I was being overlooked almost as like a backup really And I've got to admit to you is we won the league in 89 and 91 I don't think after that I ever looked at a uh an England squad because I believed a lot of time I wasn't going to get in I got in for for those two caps you right and I am so super proud of getting them against two fantastic teams uh, uh as well but you know what? If you'd have asked me where I was playing, I didn't even know half the time what day those uh, squads were being announced. Uh, And certainly I knew for myself that I wasn't going to be in them the majority of the time. Um, Yes, I got in on a few occasions. Did I like it? No. I felt it was so clicky uh, and I wasn't super confident being around uh, players that I didn't know um so i you know it wasn't a comfortable comfortable environment uh for me uh and the one thing i've said is i just wish i could have started and played 90 minutes just to show whoever was in charge at that period of time whether i was good enough to be part of the squad or, or or i wasn't but yeah i was i felt i was being overlooked um and i didn't know why i never asked the question because um did Wenger,
1: you know, Wenger, I, anything, sure. Did Wenger ever say anything to you?
3: No, anything? no, nothing, nothing at all. Uh, I don't think he, I don't think he, he sort of needed to, and, and I've no idea if Wenger spoke to any of the England managers uh, at that period of time. But you know that that didn't, that didn't sort of uh, worry me if I'm, if I'm honest, because in one way, um, I wanted to get that opportunity. But in another way, it was a bit of a relief because I wasn't put in a situation that I was totally uncomfortable with. And I did feel it was very, very clicky. And I'm sure Rio Ferdinand did, I think it was Rio Ferdinand, did a, an interview not that long ago where he said he felt it was very, very clicky as well.
1: Yeah, like um, Liverpool, Arsenal, Man United player Chelsea. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: But I, I could sort of understand that because that's the big, though. that was the big rivalry. You know, you got a, you could have been playing against those guys on the Saturday, or you could be playing against them on the following Saturday. You're coming back, but then you've got to tie and gel as a uh, uh, as, as a team for for England uh, as well. So it's not something that I I really I really worried about. If if I'm honest, I knew I was doing everything I could for my club. I was being picked regularly from my club, which was Arsenal at that period of time, uh, and if I couldn't get it in. I just stopped worrying about it. I didn't. I didn't even, as I said to you, I'll reiterate what I was just saying. I didn't even look at the squads. I didn't even know when they were were coming out. The only difference you noticed was that you know a lot of people would disappear, uh, and you ended up uh, in that period of time while everybody was away with their national teams. Uh, that you ended up usually training with the kids, and that was the that was the only difference really. Uh, but it, it wasn't. It wasn't to be. But I'll take the two I got because of the two teams I played against. But there was a little bit of frustration from my point of view that I just didn't get to play to play ninety minutes. But Stuart Pearce, I would never be disrespectful to because somebody who gets that amount of caps, uh, and I've watched play, and he was a sensational um, uh, player. But I just didn't, I couldn't work out on on periods of times you know, why I wasn't called up, and if I was, almost, if you like, like a, like a backup. But that's the way it goes, so...
1: Mm. It's know, interesting. Don't very, very honest, Nigel, so appreciate that. I, I was saying on the WhatsApp groups, the lads, the other day, I didn't realise when I was doing some research for the show that the best back five in English football, arguably, who are all English, never represented their country as a back five, which it just seems, when you think about it in literal terms, bonkers, when you could go, well, there's my back five for every game that they're fit, and I'll work on the rest going up the field. That's, I mean, anyone else want to say anything about the England? At that, that point, is I just still find it bizarre now speaking about it.
3: Um, well, personally, I find it bizarre that I think one one of the managers didn't have the courage to do that. It just... well, does, Nigel. That's a good point. But do you think either Graham or
4: Wenger would have allowed that because of injuries?
3: Yeah, oh, yeah. They would. You know, if you're picked for your national team, you. <laughs> you go you want you want to be part of your national team i mean certain managers might say "Oh, with the workload you know maybe you you know do you are you okay with going but i don't i I don't know many players if any that wouldn't want to go with their national team uh i put it more down to the england managers and they could say oh yeah but i didn't think these you know individually this player is better than this player i have no argument with that whatsoever you can't dispute that because it's somebody's opinion what i'm saying was is i am surprised that one of those england managers was not brave enough to select that back for for one friendly game mm-hmm. and then just picked everybody else um around them and and, and just see how it went. listen it may not have worked. It didn't work for us in Europe for Arsenal. So it may not it may it may not have worked, but um, yes, yeah, Brett, it's it's a good point, but it's you know it's it's what it is, and you just you for me, you, I just move on and sweep it away very, very
1: quickly. Compared to England caps now, I mean if you was playing the modern day now, you probably have 30, 40 caps because they're giving away now. It's not willingly because that's the wrong maybe word. Everyone deserves it to a point, but they're more frivolously given away. Whereas you look back, when we've done the 90s underrated team it was based on caps, mm. Steve Bruce, yourself, Um, there's, I mean, there's a, a, a plethora of players, Latissier, really amazing players that had three, four, six, ten caps. Whereas now you're looking at players and you're thinking they've got 13 caps and they, they're an average player. Well, how, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I haven't got a point to make there, so I'm just rambling on. But I, I think it is interesting that, It's such a difference how the England team is selected now and the amount of caps that are given to players now compared to in the 90s to early noughties. Yeah,
3: it's completely different, but I also admire what uh, Gareth Southgate is doing because he's not afraid to bring someone in. And if you like, they're almost being tested within training. And if if their attitude is right, he's almost giving them that opportunity because what you have to realise as well is that you might sort of have a doubt about a player, but when you get him in training and then into the game, he may play and perform way above what you're expecting him to, to play above. And role reversal. Someone who you think is a to go on and play for England, when the manager gets him in there, he's a bit disappointed with what he's producing. So I quite like what Gareth Southgate is doing because he's almost giving a lot of players... The opportunity, and he's just looking to see who fits in. I think also with uh, personally with the squad, um, and then also with uh, with with the team go- going forward. Listen, so I don't have I don't have a a, a problem with that. The, you know, there's a lot more caps given out, but we're that's just the way that the mod the modern game is. You just you just have to look at the period you you play in, and you can't judge it to any other period because. You know, um, people would say to me now, oh, the money that the players are earning now to what you earned is ridiculous. Yeah, but the money I earned to what they earned in the 60s and 70s is, you know, is those guys would would, would love to be earning what I earned. So I, I just, you know, I don't worry about it. You just got to try and look at it from more in a modern way. And we can't always go back. Yes, I think you would like, No, from an Arsenal point of view, you would like certain traditions from the old Arsenal teams. But I think you have to try and look at what is modern and uh, sort of try and see what's happening uh, going forward. But uh, it's that's just the way it
1: is. Fantastic. Uh, Nigel, thank you so much for for your time. I'm just going to finish off a quick fire round. Um, So best manager you played under?
3: Uh, Wenger.
1: Favourite film?
3: Uh, Breaking Bad. It's not a film, but it's a series. Best locker room you was in? Uh, Well, two, really. Wimbledon, because it was a pub team. Uh, and then the Arsenal team, because it was so
1: successful. Steak or fish? Uh, fish. Biggest dickhead in any squad?
3: Uh, Glenn Helder.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Single best game you played in?
1: 89, Anfield. Favourite Arsenal kit?
3: Uh, the old yellow one, Anfield 89. I've still
1: got it. <laughs> uh, the worst career, uh, your worst moment of your career? Uh, being released by Ron Saunders at Birmingham. Who wins in a fight, Palo di Cano or Vinnie Jones?
3: Uh, Vinny Jones.
1: Thank you very much. Um, ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Mr. Nigel Winterburn. Thank you so, so much, Nigel. You've been absolutely one of our favourite guests yet. No, it's not the yeah, problem, guys. yeah. It's, a, it's a pleasure to
3: be on. Thank you. That's good. <laughs> no, I I I, I could actually think of uh, worse players, but uh, you know, as we've mentioned him, and, uh, no, I don't know where I don't know where he is. So <laughs> he's, I don't know. I don't even know if he's still around. Last I heard, there was some gangs after him, but uh, <laughs> might, that might tell you why he came and left very quickly. Oh, I'm not saying any more.
0: <laughs> Sports Social Podcast Network